Coltrane. All right, so today we continue on uh, with this uh, series, Simplicity, Spirituality, and Service. And this particular chapter that we're pulling some quotes from is called Fresh Church. And we've got a couple stories on this particular Sunday that churches around the world are looking at, too, that are very much related to each other. And we'll get to those. But one of the things that I want to share with you is uh, my hypothesis, which is simply this. That the view from the mountain above casts the vision for the valley below. The view from the mountain above casts the vision for the valley below. In fact, I want you to say it out loud so I know that you're paying attention. The view from the mountain above casts the vision for the valley below. So I have a couple pieces of art uh, for you to look at while I tell you the story that they are depicting. This is the story of uh, the chariot of fire. Uh, it wasn't just a cool movie title. Uh, it uh, is a story from 2 Kings about uh, Elisha's, Elijah's apotheosis. So he is taken away into heaven. What do you do with this story? Uh, is it a literal story? Is that how we're supposed to read it? Is it folktale? How do we deal with this? The answer is yes. Anyway, let's just go with this. Uh, don't get caught up in that. Just take the story for what is being given you and uh, see where it takes us. Just before God took Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha, that was his protege, so the, Elijah's in the chariot and Elisha is his protege, who's his closest follower, were on a walk out of Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. God has sent me on an errand to Bethel. Elisha said, not on your life. I'm not going to let you out of my sight. So they both went to Bethel. The guild of prophets at Bethel met Elisha and said, did you know that God is going to take your master away from you today? Yes, he said. I know it, but keep it quiet. He's going to repeat this. I know it, keep it quiet thing. It's hard to know if he's saying this because he doesn't want to face it. It's like us, oh, too hard for me to think about or if he's not wanting other people to think about it, like it would kind of get more people in a, in a fuss. Not quite sure. Maybe it's both. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. God has sent me on an errand to Jericho. Elisha said, not on your life. I'm not letting you out of my sight. So they both went to Jericho. The guild of prophets of Jericho came to Elisha and said, did you know that God is going to take your master away from you today? Yes, he said, I know it, but keep it quiet. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here. God has sent me on an errand to the Jordan River. Elisha said, not on your life. I'm not going to let you out of my sight. And so the two of them went their way together. Meanwhile, 50 men from the guild of prophets gathered some distance away while the two of them stood at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and hit the water with it. The river divided, and the two men walked through on dry land. When they reached the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Ask anything. Elisha said, your life repeated in my life. I want to be a holy man just like you. That's a hard one, said Elijah, but if you're watching when I'm taken from you, you'll get what you've asked for, but only if you're watching. It's as if he's saying only if you're paying attention. Only if you have eyes to see. And so it happened. They were walking along and talking. Suddenly, a chariot and horses of fire came between them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it, saw it all, and shouted, My father, my father, you, the chariot and cavalry of Israel. When he could no longer see anything, he grabbed his robe and ripped it to pieces. Then he picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him 
returned to the shore of the Jordan and stood there. He took Elijah's cloak, all that was left of Elijah, and hit the river with it, saying, Now where is the God of Elijah? Where is he? And when he struck the water, the river divided, and Elisha walked through. So something of his experience in seeing this apotheosis, this Elijah ascending into heaven, that's the fancy word for it, uh, compelled him to wonder, can I dare do the same? And then today happens to be the day of the transfiguration where this story is told. This story shows up right smack dab in the middle of the gospel of Mark. It's the pinnacle story, quite literally. They're on a mountaintop and they're going to have this weird, really weird thing happen. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. His appearance changed from the inside out right before their eyes. His clothes shimmered, glistening white, whiter than any bleach could make them. Elijah, along with Moses, came into view in deep conversation with Jesus. Any Star Wars fans out there? Right? So picture the Jedis, right? You know, they're just showing up, hanging out with people. You know? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what comes to my mind, is there's this weird thing where the disciples know that they're seeing not just Jesus, but they're seeing the two great characters from Judaism, Elijah and Moses, right there with Jesus, having a conversation somehow. So Peter interrupted, Rabbi, this is a great moment. Let's build three memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He blurted this out without thinking, stunned as they all were by what they were seeing. Peter was really good at just blurting things out without thinking. Just then, a light radiant cloud enveloped them, and from deep in that cloud, a voice, this is my son, marked by my love. Listen to him. The next minute, the disciples were looking around, rubbing their eyes, seeing nothing but Jesus, only Jesus. Coming down the mountain, Jesus swore them to secrecy. Don't tell a soul what you saw. After the Son of Man rises from the dead, you're free to talk. And of course, uh, Peter is not recorded blurting out right now, but if it was, Peter would have said, what are you talking about, Son of Man raising from the dead? Because that would have been nonsense to them. They would have, that would not be in their view whatsoever. Well, what I'm submitting to you is that what we're seeing here are two mountaintop exper experiences. One is metaphorical. They're on a river, uh, so it's not a mountaintop. And the other one is on a literal mountaintop. But when we think about mountaintop experiences, that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? It's these, these moments where we kind of feel like we're close to the divine in some way. For some of us, it's out at the ocean, and we're looking over the bluff at Bodega Head, and we're just taken in the majesty of creation, and we feel overwhelmed by the, the largesse uh, before us. Sometimes it's up in the Sierra, and you're at Tahoe, and you're on the North Shore looking to the South Shore, and you see heavenly in the distance, and it's heavenly, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. Or it's Yosemite, or you fill in the blank of, of what it might be. Uh, maybe it's Arrowhead Stadium where the Chiefs play. Who knows? But uh, whatever it is for you. But what I'm saying is, is that those mountaintop experiences were not meant just for the mountaintop experiences. And this is why I care about this, is I think in our radically individualized culture, we are in danger of uh, creating mystical experiences or even our meditation, which is all good, but I think we can, we can, we can keep them only for self-serving means. Now, it's kind of impossible because if you practice meditation, um, it's going to make you a better person. It will. 
because you're going to be more in touch with yourself. Your body's going to be healthier because you're breathing deeply. You're going through this stuff. So it is not benign. If you just do it for purely selfish reasons, it's not going to be just selfish. You're going to be a better human being. You're likely going to be a better person in relationship with absolutely everybody. You're going to carry yourself into the world differently. So while it's kind of impossible for it to be purely selfish or egocentric, what I do worry about is that we miss the point of it and that we just want more and more mystical experiences. We want more and more of the meditation. And I don't think that's the point. I think what we see here are two examples of mountaintop experiences that then immediately informed what was going to happen next. That's why I give you that the view from the mountain above cast the vision for the valley below. Furthermore, I want to tell you this, that even if you're not a spiritual person at all, you have a reigning paradigm in your life. Uh, and it's probably been informed by our American culture. It's informed by your family of origin, where in our country you live. Uh, it's informed by the color of your skin, how you identify yourself, whatever, fill in the, all those blanks. You have a reigning paradigm. That is kind of your, your quiet, underneath the surface, uh, mountaintop view that informs everything you do in your life, whether or not you realize it. It's when we realize it, then we can do something about it. Well, these characters that we see, they've had their minds blown. This is like a Japanese Satori moment. And they can't see the world the same anymore. And for both of these character sets, Elisha and then the disciples, you know, this was like this confirmation for them, I think, that, what, that, that our lives are not just flesh and blood. There's more going on. We call it God, we call it spirit, our ground of being, the greater other. There's more happening. And these moments for each of these character sets was just like, I cannot live my life uh, as if that didn't exist anymore. I am a changed person. Which is, I think, why uh, Bruce Epperly, in his book, chapter this, this week, says that mysticism and experiences of this mountaintop leads to mission. And mission always changes the status quo with the vision of God's new creation. So we talk a lot about shalom around here. And I think when we have these deep experiences of the divine, however they might come to us, there's a Jewish word that comes out. And that word is shalom that we talk a lot about here. That I think is that is God's end game. Uh, however we understand God, it's what God wants to see happen in the world. It's this deep well-being, holistic wellness. It's peace between everyone. It's absolute harmony. It's how it's all supposed to work together so that everybody flourishes. That's kind of the picture of shalom. And the means to get there is not with force, but with shalom. So that's why Jesus was all about love, because he was all about shalom. It's toward shalom with shalom. But shalom challenges the status quo. Because anytime we proclaim shalom into systems that are not shalomy, <laughs> then that system is going to react. So if there's injustice, uh, if there's inequality, inequity, whatever the thing might be that we're looking at, when shalom addresses that, when the light of shalom shines on that, it's going to get some people squealing and uncomfortable because that part of the system that is not allowing shalom needs to be challenged. That's what God is all about. He calls this uh, chapter Fresh Church. 
And so in light of these things about, you know, being a spiritual body, which is what crosswalk is, and a Christian-centric body, which means that uh, while we respect other religious traditions and honor them, uh, our home base is Jesus. That's, that's, that's our wheelhouse. We choose to view Scripture. We choose to view uh, our marching orders through the lens of Christ. That's, that's, that's our take. But my question is, how fresh is crosswalk? If we're supposed to be a fresh church, just how fresh are we? Now, what's the expiration date on this puppy? <laughs> you know, is it starting to stink a little bit in the fridge? And related to that, how adventurous are we? And that adventure idea comes from this quote uh, from Epperly, who says, Adventurous spirituality affirms that all are beloved and gifted to love and serve and to be cherished and served. Isn't that wonderful? Adventurous spirituality affirms that all are beloved and gifted to love and serve and to be cherished and served. If God's center is everywhere, as Bonaventure asserts, then every person is equally centered by God, regardless of gender, sexual identity, race, and ethnicity, intelligence, age, or nation of origin. Our calling, I love this, our calling is to help our kin find their unique spiritual center as their unrepeatable gift to the world. Man, that's awesome. There's a, a song on uh, Batiste's album called Be Who You Are. And he kind of does the whole album like he's hosting a radio show, you know, going through Saturday night to Sunday morning. And one of the things he says to set up Be Who You Are, he says, here's my encouragement. Be who you are because everyone else is already taken. That's good. And that's kind of uh, vibing here uh, with this. Uh, he goes on, God speaks in the voices of infants and elders, Europeans and Afghans, gay theologians and heterosexual organists, Americans and Somalians, celibate priests and married parents. That's the vision. That's the, the view from the mountaintop that casts the vision from the valley below. So I interviewed uh, the author a couple weeks ago, and he has some stuff to say about this, which I offer you now. Yeah. Yes, and who knows what's next? I mean, I think that uh, that we are uh, faced with uh, uh, trying to provide an alternative way of em embracing uh, Franciscan thought, for example, that is truly life transformative, that truly transforms our political system, not, not as some sort of Christian exceptionalism, uh, or we've got it or they don't, you know, and, and they don't, uh, or, or we're condescending because we, we, the truth is only in our sector, but in a pluralistic society, how to influence the society toward Christian values, um, even in things where we don't know the right answer. Uh, you know, the obvious one would be the borderlands. Uh, nations need borders and they need to be rightly ordered. Uh, Nations also, for Christians who are dealing with borderlands, we have to remember that some of those folks coming up happen to have a family whose children are, whose parents' mother is Mary, Maria, and Jesus, and Jose. And Maria and Jesus and Jose are coming up the, up the road every day. And however we manage our borders, we have to do it as if they're God's children. Uh, and, and I think the, that our politics, even, especially it's tragic among Christians when Christians become the greatest hate mongers, uh, you know, putting up uh, 
fences with the barbed wire that cut people and don't seem to worry about people drowning in the Rio Grande River, you know. Uh, how do you have a humane policy? Of course, it's larger than just the border, as you well know. It's about global climate change and politics and economics in Central America. But, you know, how do we have a humane policy uh, understanding of, of uh, all the, of the issues, a Christian understanding, I use the term A, to avoid being too condescending, even when I attempted to be. <laughs> Epperly goes on to say that what happens to refugee children, Ukrainian parents, right whale pups, and polar bears on ice caps matters to us because in the intricate interdependence of life, our joys and sorrows are one. In an interdependent world, the most pitiable and dangerous person and institution is the one that believes it is, its well-being is isolated from the well-being of the community and the planet. Notions of me first, congregation first, and nation first ultimately go against our personal, congregational, national, and planetary well-being. They also go against the structure of God's world, where individuality and community, solitude and relationship cannot be separated. From this perspective, the inner and outer are one in the spiritual journey and the mystic's experience. The church that prays is also the church that sacrifices and risks its own reputation to stand with the poor. And I would say broader than the poor, the church that prays is also the church that sacrifices and risks its own reputation to stand with the vulnerable. Because that's what Jesus risked. He always came alongside the vulnerable. Tax collectors who were rejected by their own countrymen, uh, women who were prostitutes, certainly not their childhood dream. Uh, people born with conditions that made them ostracized like lepers or other things like blindness that the theology of the day assumed they were cursed by God somehow. Non-Jewish people, people of other tribes, even hated Samaritans back in the day, Jesus chose to go alongside all of them. And so how are we as a church being fresh in that kind of way, knowing that the view from the mountain above casts the vision for the valley below? How has our view of who God wants us as a church and as people within the church, how has it been shaped by this expansive, inclusive vision of love and shalom right now, today? And I think we're at one of those moments in history, period, and in our church's history specifically to ask those questions. Uh, I love crosswalk. I love our fluidity. I love that I could dance like an idiot out here and probably not get fired. I'd, we'll have to review the tape and see how bad my dancing really was. Uh, but I love that we are flexible in this stuff, and I hope we always will be to exper experiment and risk for the sake of what we're supposed to be about. But we're at a point where we need you to help that dream. You to say, I've been praying about this place. I've been praying about what we might be together. And I've been noticing these dynamics happening in our community and people that don't know what we have to offer them, ways that we may be able to help. And maybe we could try experimenting with this or that and see what sticks. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Now, what does it mean for us to be church in this era in history? Because we are at a, a massive shift 
in church history that's ha been happening for about 100 years now. <laughs> and it's got a ways to go before we really know where it's going to go. And we're, on the, we're in a good space, but we need to ask that question because we find ourselves in a valley. And we need all of us imagining, being open, praying. What is the vision from the mountaintop that will cast our vision as we walk through this valley together? Literally, this valley uh, together. But I also want to respect where you are as an individual. Because the truth is that some of you here today, um, you know, you're in a valley. Uh, it may not be a good valley either. It may be a valley of the shadow of death. Either your own or somebody that you love or somebody that you loved who's no longer with you. It may be some kind of a medical thing you're going through. It could be a work stress. It could be a mental health struggles that you're having. I don't know what it is. But if you're human, uh, you go through these valleys at times. And after all that I said about not being egocentric and selfish, well, we're a part of it. And how you are doing matters. And so my question for you is, if you're in the valley, have you remembered the view from the mountaintop? Because that helps. At least it's helped me. Not in a dismissive way, not in a denial kind of a way, like the valley's not real, the pain's not real. But in the sense of being reminded that there is a greater other. There is a greater thing that we are a part of. There have been many times in my life when I've been in just these horrible places of stress and anxiety. And honestly, the only thing that helped was to get back to that space, that mountaintop view. Sometimes literally taking a day to go out to Bodega, uh, sometimes to drive to the mountains or Yosemite or whatever and just breathe. Sometimes just through meditation of being able to just center and let go and be at one with this greater other we call God. Because when we are connected in that level, born from stillness on our own or the expansiveness of the creation that screams worship to God all the time. There's something about that experience that grounds us, reminds us that whatever hell we're going through today, it is not forever. That there is something bigger that we're a part of that holds us and will never let go. And that thing is marked by love, that thing we call God. And is trustworthy, is faithful, we can lean into it and it will hold us. So maybe for you today, that's really what you need is to know that you may be going through hell, you may have yet to go through hell. There's going to be a season of suck in your future, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because Elijah got in that chariot of fire. And Moses and Elijah met Jesus on the mountaintop. And eventually, Christ resurrected in some mysterious way that we can't quite understand, but all of it together suggests that there's more going on. And that more is lovely and shalomy. And it's for you. So, uh, my... Final question, just to bring it back around to make sure that we're not uh, overly selfish with this vision from the mountaintop, is just to remember that while we are important 
uh, parts of this. Uh, me is a part of the we. And when we think of the we, it naturally starts to work for the me. You know what I mean? So it's not all about us. It's not just about us. It's about the bigger picture. It's about what can we do together. And one thing that, um, that is clear to me uh, when we think of the greats, the spiritual greats throughout time, is that there, and we need to remember this in our egocentric society and egocentric humanity, that the greats of all religions or the great world changers for the good, uh, they all had their mountaintop visions, their views, and what it ended up translating in their lives was other-centeredness. It was service, which surely is why Epperly named his book Simplicity, Spirituality, and Service. The mark that you have been touched by God is not that you can walk around and brag about how many spiritual experiences you've had. It's this maturing reality that you're a part of something and you want to be a part of that greater unfolding. There's a very inspirational speech that you have probably heard by a very famous someone that uh, is often remembered this time of the year. And before we have our closing fresh prayer that, uh, that was crafted by Bruce Epperly, uh, you need to be reminded again of this prophet that was in our midst uh, just 60 years ago. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. what will happen now we've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop I don't mind like anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
We should have just started with that and just gone home. I mean, wow. So powerful. But you get the point. This is this, is this guy saying, this is what I'm about. And some say he had some kind of premonition that his life was going to get cut short, and it sure was the next morning. Uh, but he was willing to lay it all on the line for the greater other, for this greater thing, because he knew that that greater thing was what was holding him in the first place. He knew that that grating, greater thing was his origin and his destination. There's more going on, and he was all about it, which leads us to this closing fresh prayer, which I invite you to say with me out loud. Open my senses to the world's suffering. Open my heart to God's pain and the pain of the world. Open my hands to give selfless and generous service. Open my tongue that I might speak to everyone as if they were an angel, addressing them with respect and compassion. Let me see you, O Jesus, in all creatures and act always to bring beauty to your life and the world. Amen. Thanks for playing along today. It was a fun ride. Hope you have a great afternoon to see the Niners champions of the world, right? Have a great day. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.